All right. We have two goals this evening. Um, we are going to be looking at both the brief book of Obadiah as well as the brief book of Nahum. And they have a few things um, in common, which makes our looking at them together appropriate. Obviously, there is the uh, length issue. It allows us to look at two in one night. And there are, however, other minor prophets that are just as brief. Habakkuk is also a three-chapter book like Nahum. Um, on top of that, they have another thing in common, which is that they are the uh, two of the three minor prophets who focus on foreign nations. The majority of the 12, Amos, Hosea, address Israel, address the southern kingdom of Judah, but uniquely Obadiah, Nahum, and Jonah address foreign nations, specifically the people of Edom and the people of Nineveh. In fact, it would be appropriate and it would have been quite fun to cover both the book of Jonah and Nahum together as they're both addressed to Nineveh and are both very different books, one emphasizing God's mercy and compassion being greater even than his prophet can understand, and Nahum, as we'll see tonight, about the significance of God's judgment. But it is that that brings Obadiah and Nahum together probably closer than any of the other 12 minor prophets. They are both books that uh, forebodingly speak of God's inescapable judgment on the enemies of Israel. Beginning with Obadiah here. Now, as we saw with Amos, we will also see with Obadiah and Nahum, we don't have a lot of background information about these people. In fact, we have to discern from the message itself even the chronology, the timeline of when these men ministered. Notice that Obadiah opens in verse 1 saying, the vision of Obadiah, that is it. That is the entire biography we have of Obadiah. We can, however, um, draw some pretty solid conclusions about the book of when it was written. By nature, what Obadiah criticizes the people of Edom for here is the way that they sat like scavengers and to some degree like cheerleaders when Jerusalem was destroyed by Babylon. So that sets the beginning date, if you will, for when Obadiah was written. Sometime during the Babylonian exile, sometime while Israel was living abroad as deplaced and deported exiles in Babylon, Obadiah ministered. We also know that by 500 BC, the Edomites that are referenced here in this book cease to exist, okay? So it's somewhere in that period of time, just about 100 years that Obadiah um, speaks that Obadiah prophesies here. As I mentioned, uh, this book, look at the tail end of verse 1 here, thus says the Lord God concerning Edom. The Edomites were a neighbor in the southern region of Judea. They came uh, from the people of Esau, and so they had a familial relationship 
with the people of Israel. Esau and Jacob were brothers. And so they existed as two nations very far back in history, and their relationship is, like many family relationships, complicated. Uh, There are occasions where the Edomites show animosity to Israel. There are occasions where Israel puts the Edomites into subjection. There are occasions where they partner together because of other enemies. Over the course of the centuries, they've had a lot of different relationships. But as we'll see, Obadiah emphasizes the fact that this is a brotherly relationship. They're not merely neighboring nations. They have ancestral ties to one another, and apparently God cares about that. And so here it's to address the Edomites. Now, one last thing. I mentioned earlier the book of Jonah, and Jonah is unique of all the prophets in the Old Testament because we see in the narrative of Jonah that Jonah is sent to Assyria, sent to the Assyrian city of Nineveh. He goes and he preaches there. The rest of the prophets that we deal with, with maybe the exception of Ezekiel, who preaches in Babylon but among his own people, the rest of the prophets are sent to Israel, and that includes Obadiah. It's very unlikely that Obadiah traveled to the land of Edom. Whether he was still living in the land of Israel after Babylon had destroyed Jerusalem or he was living in Babylon, this is not a message to the Edomites as much as it is a message about the Edomites. They are the content, the focus of this prophecy, but Obadiah's audience is Israel. Why? Because they need to be comforted that the injustice they've experienced by their supposed brothers will be brought to justice. And so Obadiah is a letter of comfort to those who have been mistreated by the nation of Edom. We'll see that as we continue reading. Let's open up here in verse 1 in the second part. We have heard a report from the Lord And a messenger has been sent among the nations. Rise up. Let us rise against her for battle. Behold, I will make you small among the nations. You shall be utterly despised. And so there's a call, almost like a battle cry, gathering the nations for the destruction of Edom. And he says, I'm going to make you small. I'm going to make you despised. But notice the contrast to verse 3. The pride of your heart has deceived you. There are so many occasions across the scriptures where God references the fact that he resists the proud. Or like in the words of Mary after she finds out that she's going to have a son who will be the Messiah. When she says that, uh, that the high have been brought low and the low have been exalted. Right? We see this emphasis all the time. And so here, Obadiah is a reaction to the pride of Edom. And we'll see that that pride manifests in a couple of different ways. First, it says, the pride of your heart has deceived you, you who live in the clefts of the rock, in your lofty dwelling. Okay, so the first pride they have here is a pride of security. No one can touch us because we live, as it says here, in the cleft of the rocks. Okay, now, most likely, Petra is not an Edomite city, but it is in the land of Edom. Okay, so if you can remember from Indiana Jones, the entrance to where the, um, the, or the finale of the Last Crusade takes place, where that, there's that city just carved in the rock, that's Petra. 
okay? That's the land of Edom. It's a very rocky place. It's full of, um, of gullies and caverns and large rocks. And so Edom looks at that and says, we are safe from attack. We are protected from invaders because we have smartly chosen to live, you know, in, in nature's fortress, right, is the idea. And so there's a security here. On top of that, it says, in your lofty dwelling who say in your heart, who will bring me down to the ground? Right? That's their sense of security. We are so secure, we are untouchable. Right? That's pride. Pride sometimes manifests in a sense of safety. But look at what God says in verse 4. Though you soar aloft like the eagle, though you set your nest among the stars, from there I will bring you down, declares the Lord. Measurements are always relative, right? Depending on what you're doing and what you're measuring, when we measure the movement of atoms under a microscope, we're dealing with a minuscule measurement, right? But when we measure planets, we have to use large measurements or light with light years, right? Here, their measurement of safety is that they're, you know, up in the higher realm of the world, but compared to God's measurement, they're, they're inches away. Right? That's the idea here is they're proud, and they may be able to be proud comparatively. In fact, pride is always comparative, and we'll see that that's the problem. If you see yourself as secure, you see others as less secure. If you see yourself as great, you see others as lesser. And we'll see that that idea of self-importance is exactly what leads the Edomites to behave the way they behave with their little brother, with their little brother uh, Israel. Okay. But God says, effectively, what may be comparatively safe for you is not safe when you bring me into the equation, right? He says, if you want, you can get in a spaceship, Edom. You can transport your people to another planet, and from there I will bring about judgment. And so their security deceives them, like it said back in verse 3. Look at verse 5. If thieves came to you, if plunderers came by night, how you have been destroyed, would they not steal only enough for themselves? He says, hypothetical. Imagine you're a house and you have a break-in. The thieves only take what's of value. They only take what they can carry. They only take what they have time to get away with safely, right? And so it's very rare that you come home to a house that's been broken into and find nothing. Thieves only take, you know, some. But here, he says, it's not going to be the same. He gives another illustration. He says, if grape gatherers come to you, would they not leave gleanings? Okay, so it's a grape harvest, and you're moving through the vineyard, and you're trying to be fast. You're trying to be quick, because the grapes are literally continuing to ripen on the vine. You need to get them into the storage, and then you need to get them out to the stores before they get overripe. And so you don't stop and stoop and check under every leaf and make sure that you don't miss a single grape. In fact, Obadiah may be even making reference here, because remember his audience is Jewish, to the Jewish laws that required them to leave behind some grapes during the gleaning so that the poor could come behind them and find something to eat. But either way, just like the thieves, once you're done harvesting a vineyard, there's still some grapes. But look at verse 6 how Esau has been pillaged and his treasures sought out. 
He says, I'm going to empty you out. There's going to be nothing left. I'm going to be thorough. It makes me think of the Grinch, right? A couple of the houses that the Grinch hits in that old animated classic, there's nothing left except a little crumb left for the mouse, and he takes the crumb as well, right? God is talking here about a thorough and complete consequence, not one that is circumstantial. And so in the same way that that measurement, when they measure themselves against those who may attack them, human beings, they're relatively safe. When they measure themselves against those who might attack them in terms of what they would take, they're relatively secure, but not when they include God. Verse 7, all your allies have driven to you, to you to your border. Those at peace with you have deceived you, and they have prevailed against you. So here's another thing that Edom believes that they take pride and therefore security in. We have friends in high places. We're connected with powerful entities, and so we don't have to worry, right? You don't have to worry about your lunch money being stolen when you're friends with the quarterback. In the same way here, the Edomites look around and they've made smart military alliances, and so they have these right friends in right places, and so they'll be safe. But God says, no, you won't. He says, the same ones that you made peace with have deceived you. They've prevailed against you. Those who eat your bread have set a trap beneath you. That speaks of betrayal. He says, you have no understanding. In other words, you're not going to see this coming. It's not going to be an occasion where the Edomites go, you know what? The tide's kind of turning against us. Popular support is waning Maybe we need to rethink things. No, it's going to be right as they're nesting in their security. We have all of these friends that they're going to discover that the friends are false. Okay. Verse 8. Will I not on that day, declares the Lord, destroy the wise men out of Edom? This is something we know from history, by the way. The Edomites had a class of people, wise men, who were known for their military strategy, for their economic principles. Okay? They had a class of people that they trusted in to guide and to lead them. They had wisdom on their side. Okay? Another place for their pride. But he says, I'm going to destroy the wise men out of Edom and understanding out of Mount Esau. Okay? One of the things, again, the Bible makes clear is that the wisdom of this world, Paul says in Corinthians, is foolishness to God. Okay? It just taps out. Again, it's not that you know, knowing when to buy or sell or knowing how to get the job done is a bad thing. It's just a limited thing. Okay? You can know everything about the stock market and then some weirdos on Reddit can take advantage of the system and mess up your plans. No wisdom would have prepared us for this weird GameStop thing that happened this week, but it happened. Okay, wisdom is always limited. And then notice verse 9, your mighty men shall be dismayed, O Taman. Taman was one of the larger cities in Edom. And so imagine this city has a large military representation. Lots of strong soldiers. It's the fighting force of Edom. It's what they boast in. We're strong because we're in a secure place. We're strong because we have friends in high places. We're strong because we have the wise men. And we're strong because we have a strong military. And God basically says, I don't care. It will not save you when I bring about justice. So that, he says, every man from Mount Esau will be cut off 
by slaughter. Okay, and so here God is giving a very strong and significant warning to the people of Edom that they have judgment coming and that although they're so proud they can't see it, they will not escape it. And it's in verse 10 that we find out why. Why is this judgment coming? What are the crimes that lead to this sentencing? Verse 10, because of the violence done to your brother Jacob, shame shall cover you and you shall be cut off forever. Okay. Because of their behavior against Israel, God is going to bring consequence. And notice, God doesn't say because of the violence you did to my people Israel here, although he could have. In other places, we see just that emphasis. Here, the uh, one that is hit by Obadiah is that it's the violence you've done to your brother. There's a relationship here. They're neighbors. They have familial ties, right? Esau being uh, the brother of Isaac and both of them being the son of Jacob, right? That's that's the story here. Uh, Excuse me, the son of Abraham. Boy, I'm getting this all mixed up. Esau being the brother of Jacob and the son of Isaac. There we go. Okay, so they have a family history. Not only that, but they have have at times had peace covenants, commitments to one another. And I find this really striking because we see here that God cares about geopolitical behavior. Now, here's something that you will discover when you look at history. History. Treaties, apparently in practice, are meant to be broken, right? A nation agrees uh, to, you know, a pact of nonviolence with another nation until it's no longer convenient, and then they break the pact. Never in history have two nations come together and shook hands and said, we are canceling the treaty, right? Somebody always breaks it. And we see here that God notices, and God cares, He cares about the alliances and the relationships and the histories between nations. And so he weighs the behavior we're about to read against the expectation that this nation should have. And as we'll see, and I find this fascinating, the first complaint that God makes about Edom is that they sat by and watched. Now, he's going to complain about more than that. He's going to criticize them for their active involvement of the downfall. But he begins with their passive non-involvement of what's happening to a neighboring nation. Look at what it says in verse 11. On that day, you stood aloof. On that day, the strangers carried off his wealth, and foreigners entered his gates and cast lots for Jerusalem, and you were like one of them. Okay. So here's what happens. Uh, Side note. When Babylon does take Jerusalem, it's an almost 18-month siege. Okay? A siege is when you surround a city and you basically starve it out until they surrender. So for an 18-month period here, Esau, Edom, Israel's closest nation, watches as Babylon gathers and does nothing. In fact, as we'll see, we get the feeling that they're kind of rooting for the other team. They're cheering for the Babylonians. I said does nothing, but they probably popped popcorn, right? They set up banisters. Maybe they made banners to wave and foam fingers. They are excited about that. It says here, you were like one of them. You identified with the other team. But verse 12, 
but do not gloat over the day of your brother in the day of his misfortune. Now remember here, what we're reading here is about international politics, nation to nation. But the principle is also, I think, um, connectable with interpersonal relationships, just one person and another. And so the first accusation that God makes here is that Edom has been unjust in not protecting or delivering or fighting for or coming alongside Israel in the day of their destruction. And then second, because they gloated over it in the day of their misfortune. Remember what I said about pride earlier? Pride is inherently comparative. And so because we are better than little brother, brother Israel, he's not worth saving, not worth protecting. He gloats over it, in fact. He takes pleasure in it. He says, exactly as you deserve, which, by the way, is always the language of pride, right? Because when we imply that somebody deserves it, that's in contrast to ourselves who do not, okay? He continues here. He says, do not gloat over the day of your brother in the day of his misfortune. Second, do not rejoice over the people of Judah in their day of ruin. Do not boast in the day of distress. So here's another thing they're doing is they're sitting there going, never happened to us. If they were just smart enough to have settled in the mountains, if they had just made more friends in high places, if they had our wise men or our armies, right? The comparison is implied there. And so here they boast and they think, yeah, that makes sense because Israel can't defend themselves. Unlike us, they were vulnerable to this attack. But notice it doesn't stop there. Up to verse 12, they're just on the sidelines, but notice that it evolves over the course of this. Verse 13, do not enter the gate of my people in the day of their calamity. What would they be doing there? Okay, here Jerusalem is sacked, the siege is over, the Babylonians are coming in, they're arresting people, uh, arresting is probably the wrong word, but they're taking them into captivity. And suddenly, Edom comes in for a closer view. Starts to move from the sidelines into the field. Okay, gets a closer look. And then notice it continues here. Do not gloat over his disaster in the day of his calamity. And then the tail end of 13, do not loot his wealth in the day of his calamity. Edom behaves like the vulture. Right? Vultures very rarely ever kill their prey. They wait for someone stronger to do it for them, and then they are, um, are those that take advantage of that, swoop in for the leftovers. It's almost an ironic image, isn't it, considering what God said he was going to do to Edom? Here are the Babylonians even. When they sack Jerusalem and devastate it, leave things behind. But the Edomites follow through and glean the fields, ransack the houses, Look for anything of value that's left behind, which, let's just recognize, means that they profit from the misfortune of Israel. Very directly. Literal coins in pockets profit, right? Look at this in verse 14. Do not stand at the crossroads to cut off his fugitives. And so here it is as if Israel is fleeing from the Babylonians. The city is broken, and so people are sneaking out the back door and running away. And conveniently here, the Edomites start setting up barriers and blocking the roads, right? Now they're participating, uh, and they're cutting off the fugitives. And then notice this, do not hand over his survivors in the day 
of his distress. So not only are they blocking their way, but they're signaling the Babylonians and saying, we've got more of them here, we're holding on to them, right? They've become full-fledged participants here. And so what we see is two things before we move forward. One, we see a justice. We'll see this in in Nahum as well. Uh, There is an eye for an eye reality of what God lays out here. We'll see more of it in just a minute here. But already we've seen that there is a sense of pride that's going to be dealt with, and they're going to experience the same thing that they watched and even participated in in Israel. But then something very strange happens in the second half of the book. We'll notice here from verse 15 on that God is clearly through Obadiah still talking about the Edomites and still talking about the destruction of the Edomites that happens, like I said, about 500 BC um, by the Nabataeans. But it's going to be bigger than that. Okay. Here the Edomites become a template. God's bringing justice on the Edomites becomes a template for something bigger. Here the audience grows from just a single nation to the nations, and it grows from a day of judgment to the day of God's judgment. Okay, so look at verse 15. For the day of the Lord is near upon all the nations. Again, like I said, Obadiah points out here that God's concern is not just because the Edomites mistreated his people Israel, but because they mistreated a brother nation, a fellow nation. And so here he says the day of the Lord is near for all nations. God cares what happens, you know, on this side of the Pacific, down to the southern tip of Africa, up north and to the east into Russia and the islands of Japan. And then notice the Lex Talonis here, the statement of eye for an eye justice. As you have done, it shall be done to you. Your deeds shall return on your own head. Now, Gandhi appropriately said, an eye for an eye leaves the whole world blind. Recognizing the fact that if eye for an eye and tooth for a tooth is your mantra, if you hurt me, I'm going to hurt you. Like Jay-Z says, if you kill my dog, I'm going to kill your cat. Okay? If it comes down to that, then it's just a constant rebounding of vengeance. But it's important to recognize here, Obadiah doesn't call Israel to bring about revenge, does he? In fact, if we look for the question of what Israel's supposed to do here, they're just to wait. They're just to believe that God will bring about justice. But even the Lex Talonis, where we get that phrase, eye for an eye from, which comes from the book of Deuteronomy, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, was never meant to be a minimum sentence, but a maximum. If you read it in its context, it's a constraining of justice so that justice doesn't become a bigger crime, okay? If you look at, for example, the Code of Hammurabi, there are plenty of crimes that could cost you your life. But if you look at the Old Testament law, it's life for life, okay? And so stealing a loaf of bread doesn't equal a man's life, okay? The Lex Talonis was a call for the opposite of cruel and unusual punishment, for consistent and reasonable punishment, okay? And God here has that same justice. He says, as you have treated, 
so you will be treated. By the way, Jesus makes a similar statement. As you have judged, so you will be judged. Right? There is a justice here. He says, your deeds shall return on your own heads. Another thing that Jesus says, those who live by the sword will die by the sword. Right? It's the same idea here. Verse 16, for as you have drunk on my holy mountain, so all the nations shall drink continually. They shall drink and swallow, and they shall be as though they've never been. But in Mount Zion, there shall be those who escape, and it shall be holy, and the house of Jacob shall possess their own possessions. Now pause. Here he speaks directly to the people of Israel, and he speaks here not of judgment, but of flourishing. But you need to notice one more thing. It's not just, I'm going to curse your enemies and bless you, Israel. It's, I'm going to restore, right? Why is it that Mount Zion isn't currently occupied? Why is it that Israel isn't possessing their own possessions? Because they've been taken And these two things go hand in hand. This will be much stronger in the book of Nahum. But part of the reason why this is a comfort is, one, because justice will be done, and that justice, too, implies restoration. Now, this is a strange thing to read here, because, again, what what is it that instigates this letter? Why is Obadiah talking at all? He's talking because Babylon has sacked Jerusalem. But if you've been studying with us for the past few months as we've looked at Isaiah and Ezekiel and Jeremiah, that's not injustice in those prophets, it's justice. It is directly what Israel had deserved, okay? It is a consequence of their unfaithfulness. Now, there's a sense here where we could read this, and especially as we'll see in Nahum, and we can go, wait a minute, how can God bring judgment on his own instrument of judgment? How is it fair that he uses Babylon and then threatens Babylon for what they did? But I would suggest to you that this is like the logic that Paul uses when he says, well, if sin produces grace, then let us do evil so good may come. It's a misunderstanding of what's going on here. God is totally capable of utilizing evil and even injustice to bring about his good plan. In fact, no place is this more true than in the cross of Christ. There is nothing that is good or beautiful or holy or just about that moment except in the fact that God uses it in such an amazing way where an innocent man is lied about, okay? Where his trial is unjust, where Pilate basically gives up the ghost of justice because he's just too tired to deal with it, where the Pharisees cover their, uh, you know, unrighteousness and robes of righteousness, all of this injustice where humanity kills the God who made them, who came and lives out a life of love, healing, and preaching the good news of the kingdom, right? And yet it's that moment that God uses to bring about not just justice, as Jesus bears the punishment, but also forgiveness, Forgiveness for the same people who put Jesus on the cross. Remember what he prays. Father, forgive them. And so here again, we've moved beyond 
the momentary and specific. Babylon sacks Jerusalem, Edom participates, therefore Edom will be destroyed. And we're looking to the final conclusion of things, and the recognition here is that oppression will be righted, that what is stolen will be restored, that evil will not have the last day and the last word, but that justice will be done. Look at verse 18. The house of Jacob shall be a fire, and the house of Joseph a flame, and the house of Esau stubble. You know what that is? It's an unfair fight, right? It's not something you would pay to watch, fire versus stubble, right? It's, it's a foregone conclusion. He says, they shall burn them and consume them, and there shall be no survivor for the house of Esau, for the Lord has spoken. Verse 19, those of the Negev shall possess Mount Esau, and those of Shephelah shall possess the land of the Philistines. Remember how I said here it moves from the specific to the general? Here's another common enemy of the Israelites, right? Think of David and Goliath, right? The Philistines. And he says, they shall possess the land of Ephraim and the land of Samaria, and Benjamin shall possess Gilead. The exiles of the host of this people of Israel shall possess the land of the Canaanites as far as Zarephath. And the exiles of Jerusalem and shepherds shall possess the cities of the Negeb. Okay, in other words, what we're seeing here is Israel not just restored the land, but their boundaries expanding. Okay. And again, remember that what is envisioned here is a work of God. It's a setting right of things that have gone wrong. Look at verse 21. Saviors shall go up to Mount Zion to rule Mount Esau, and the kingdom shall be the Lord's. Now, one of the problems with both Obadiah and Nahum, when we read it as Christians, is not only are they very strong on judgment, but it's difficult, I think, for us to discern how they connect with Jesus at all. Now, as we'll see, sometimes we overplay that card because if you read the book of Revelation, we see a Jesus who is very much in corresponding character with what we've read here. But also, when we look at this and we go, all right, well, where is a reference to the work of Jesus Christ? There's an idea of restoration, but there's no explanation of how. But it is interesting, isn't it, in verse 21, Savior shall go up to Mount Zion to rule Mount Esau, and the kingdom shall be the Lord's. Obadiah here connects the accomplishment with, of justice and the setting of things right with the kingdom being the Lord's. Now, we don't have time to go through the book of Daniel tonight. But Daniel presents a very similar vision and in a similar way. Remember the king of Babylon, Nebuchadnezzar, has a dream. And he dreams of a statue with a golden head and silver shoulders and torso and iron legs and then feet that are iron mixed with clay. And as he watches as this statue towers over the world, a rock that's not cut with human hands is lifted up and thrown and the whole thing topples and then it grows into a mountain. And when Daniel explains, he explains that each of the parts of the statue is a conquering empire. And so first we have Babylon and then Babylon is replaced by the Medo-Persians, and then the Medo-Persians by the Greeks, and then the Greeks by the Romans. But one day, the kingdom will be the Lord's. 
It won't be the kingdom of man, but it will be a kingdom that belongs to the Lord, and that will bring about justice and peace. And at this point, I think it'd be easy to think, all right, well, the way that God is going to do that is primarily through warfare, through judgment, through justice, and that's what makes Jesus' coming so striking. Because Jesus comes proclaiming the kingdom, but not with a sword. Jesus shows up and he announces that the kingdom is here, but he's not enthroned by the people of Israel, but crucified. In fact, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and John, all in their own way, ironically paint the crucifixion narrative as the exaltation of Jesus. And so in Matthew, remember, they, they wrap him in a robe, and they crown him, and they declare, Hail, King of the Jews. And even Pilate himself writes a sign, This is the King of the Jews. Right? That is the royal ceremony, and they're playing it out in a mocking way. But it's true. In John, it's even stronger. Read the last few chapters of the Gospel of John before the crucifixion, what we call the um, upper room discourse, right? John 15, 16, 17. Near the end of it, Jesus says, Now my time has come. Glorify me. And what is the glorification of Jesus? to the brutal and shameful death that he endures in the next chapter. It's striking. Abraham Lincoln famously, uh, famously chided his critics because they didn't like how he dealt with his enemies. And specifically, they didn't like how he dealt with his enemies, which was he made them his friends. And what's so striking about Obadiah is when we try and look for an innocent party, we find one and only one, and it is God himself. And yet the power of the gospel is that God reaches into that world. And I'll remind you here that if Obadiah is written before the fall of Edom, then what is it? It's a warning. It presents the possibility of repentance. And as Isaiah and Ezekiel both make clear, God hears repentance and response. But Edom was too proud. Let's turn over to Nahum. To get there, you're going to have to go past Jonah. You're going to have to go past Micah. And then we get to Nahum. Now, what Obadiah is writ small, Nahum is in capital letters. What Obadiah infers about God's judgment in pencil, Nahum writes with a sharpie. In fact, this book is so intense in the level of presenting God's anger, wrath, judgment, that some have even called it the hymn of hate. And some have even tried to reject it as being uh, a valuable book for Christians at all. However, Nahum's name means comfort. So how is it that this hymn of hate can be comforting? Again, we have to put it in the context and recognize what's going on. Verse 1, an oracle concerning Nineveh. Okay. Nineveh was the capital city 
of the Assyrians. Not only was Assyria the people that God used to judge the northern tribes, the ten tribes, with the capital being Samaria, and take them into punishment, but Assyria was also a tremendous threat in the following years to the southern tribe of Judah. You may remember when Shennacherib comes to the gates of Judah and basically says, look, I've conquered all of your friends and neighbors. Do not think that your God is going to deliver me. Their gods didn't deliver me. And the guards try and console the people. And he shouts out and he says, look, if you listen to your rulers, I'm going to have you drinking your own urine. It's intense, right? This is the king of Assyria. This is Nineveh that is being talked to here. But just as an aside, one that we'll pick up later, this is also the Nineveh that Jonah is sent to. And if you're curious about the chronology here, Jonah goes to Nineveh a hundred years before the book of Nahum. Okay. Generations later, Nahum writes. And I want you to notice here, it says, an oracle concerning Nahum, the book of the vision of Nahum of Elkosh. And again, the only biographical detail we've given is either from the family of Elkosh or from the city of Elkosh, and we don't even know enough about his time to know which one. We don't know of a city named Elkosh, okay? But he begins this message of judgment, and I want you to notice that he starts with God's character. In fact, outside of the introduction here in verse 1, Nineveh is not named explicitly until chapter 2. If we're going to understand God's judgment... Nahum says we have to start with God's character. Verse 2, the Lord is a jealous and avenging God. The Lord is avenging and wrathful. The Lord takes vengeance on his adversaries. Okay, in every line there we have the word vengeance, right? Twice as an adjective and one as a verb. Okay, that's emphasized. And then it finishes by saying, and keeps wrath for his enemies. Okay, and so God here is presented as angry and vengeful. Okay. However, look at what it says in verse 3. The Lord is slow to anger and great in power, and the Lord will by no means clear the guilty. Now, here in verse 3, I want you to notice two things. First, we see significant constraints on God's character. Right? He's vengeful, he's wrathful, he's avenging, but he's also slow to anger. Okay? He's not likely to fly off the handle. He's not capricious with his anger. Okay? And then notice it says that the Lord will by no means clear the guilty. What does that say about God's character? It says justice. Right? It puts it in the context of a legal idea. Okay? Not only that, but the second thing I want you to know is that this is a quotation. That this sentence that finds its way into Nahum here is old in its heritage and history. In fact, it may be very well the most quoted passage in all the Old Testament by the Old Testament. Okay, this is the same passage that Jonah refers to. It's the same passage that we saw quoted in Amos. It shows up in Isaiah and it shows up in 1 Kings. It is everywhere. And it comes from Ezekiel 34. Now let me set the context for you in Ezekiel 34. Moses has just asked to see God for who he really is. God, show me your glory. 
And God says, you can't survive that, but I'll hide you in a rock and I'll pass by. And while I'm passing by, I'll cover it. And all you'll see is my afterglow, right? All you'll see is my backside, he says. And then as he passes by, he defines himself. God gives his character. And so look at uh, Exodus 34. Look at what it says in verse 6. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord is a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. So notice what this is in Exodus. It's the self-revelation of God's character. Moses wants to see God, and he says, if you really want to know me, I have to tell you who I am. And this is what he tells him. But also notice that Nahum does some heavy editing. Did you notice? Right here, he's gracious and abounding in kindness. But Nahum doesn't add anything to the list. He just emphasizes by subtraction. Even if we remove the things in Exodus and leave Nahum's list, it is still God's self-revelation. And remember, remember that this is the same quotation from the book of Jonah. Here, let me put it in the context of Jonah. In Jonah chapter 4, Jonah is sitting next to this same city, Nineveh, a hundred years earlier that he's just marched through with a simple statement, 40 days and then the judgment. And so he's sitting on the edge of the city, waiting for the city to be consumed in God's wrath, and it doesn't happen. And God notices that Jonah is growing in anger, and he says, Jonah, is it right for you to be angry? And Jonah says, this is why I didn't want to come to Nineveh, because I knew you were And he quotes from Exodus 34, this same passage. I knew you were a gracious and abounding in steadfast love, forgiving. Okay, It's the same character here. So what's different? The difference here is that Assyria is not looking for forgiveness. In Jonah's day, they respond to the message and they repent. But the question we always have to ask, and it doesn't matter if we're talking about God's judgment or if we're talking about hell, the question we always have to ask is, what if it won't be received? What if it's rejected? And so here, yes, God is gracious, loving, abounding in steadfast love, forgiving, but he is also, as Nahum reminds Nineveh, great in power, will by no means uh, clear the guilty as well as being an avenging God. This is who God is. And then he goes on here and he moves from talking about God's character to God's works. Okay? One of the things that he mentioned in that is that God is powerful, but he shows that to be the case here. He says his way 
is in the whirlwind and the storm and the clouds are the dust of his feet. He rebukes the sea and makes it dry. He dries up all the rivers. Bashan and Carmel wither. The bloom of Lebanon withers. The mountains quake before him. The hills melt. The earth heaves before him. The world and all who dwell in it. I want you to notice that he does a few things here. First, when it says he rebukes the sea and makes it dry, that reminds us, us of something, doesn't it? It reminds us of the Exodus, right? It reminds us of the Red Sea being parted and Israel walking through it, okay? But remember that that same parting of the sea and the closing of the sea is what God uses to bring judgment on the Egyptians that are pursuing them, the same Egyptians that have enslaved them for hundreds of years, okay? And that's one of the things you have to wrestle with and understand if you're going to understand the biblical idea of judgment, justice, hell, all of these ideas is that there's a correlation here between justice and the setting right of injustice. That there's a correlation between bringing justice on the oppressor and setting free the oppressed. That there's a correlation between judgment and salvation. And we see that here. But second, I want you to notice that it says Bashan and Carmel withers and the bloom of Lebanon withers. Where are those places? They're in Israel. They're not over along the Tigris. They're not in the, in the nation of Assyria. He's drawing here from imagery to his own people that his own people would understand. But remember, they also know that God is, yes, long-suffering and patient, but also just. Okay. And then lastly, in verse 5, the imagery gets real big, doesn't it? The mountains quake before him, the hills melt, the earth heaves before him, and the world and all who dwell in it. Okay? That goes full-fledged, universal. And then he asks this question, verse 6, who can stand before his indignation? Who can endure the heat of his anger? Now, why is he asking these questions? Because Nineveh's not afraid. The reason why he's presenting him, presenting Nineveh here with the character of God, presenting Nineveh with the power of God as displayed in his works, is because they need to see these things, but they're not the only ones. Remember, Nahum probably didn't ever visit Assyria. He probably didn't convey this message to, to Nineveh at all. He wrote this to his own people. It's a message not of God's judgment, but of comfort a people who were being actively oppressed by the Assyrians need to know, hey, don't forget who God is. Don't forget what God is capable of. Listen to these questions again, but think of yourself as being the victim of years and years of militaristic oppression. Who can stand before God's indignation? Who can endure the heat of his anger? His wrath is poured out like fire and the rocks are broken to pieces by him. And then notice this in verse 7, the Lord is good, a stronghold in the day of trouble. He knows those who take refuge in him. Okay. We're talking here not just about God the judge, but God the savior, God the deliverer, God the protect protector. And I want you to remember that this statement here, the Lord is good, a stronghold in the day of trouble. He knows those who take refuge in him. Nineveh knows this personally. Because a hundred years ago, they got the memo, they responded to it in repentance, and God spared them. But, verse 8, with an overflowing flood, he will make a complete end of the adversaries. 
and will pursue his enemies into darkness. Now clearly there's a contrast there, but there's also an interesting play on words because it says here that he's going to do it with an overflowing flood, and we'll see there's probably a reason for that later. But what I want to draw your attention to right now is that in Isaiah's message, when he warns the northern tribes of Israel that God's going to bring judgment on them, he says he's going to do it with an overflowing flood. And who is it? It's Assyria. Okay. And so there's, there's a poignancy to this in the fact that they, they know firsthand as the instruments of God's judgment, the power of God's judgment. Verse 9, what do you plot against the Lord? He will make a complete end. Trouble will not rise up a second time. Okay. There's a finality here to God's judgment and to his justice. And as a side note, just to kind of spoil it in advance, although we'll return to it, Nineveh was so devastated by Babylon when it was destroyed, we didn't find the site of Nineveh, one of the greatest cities in the ancient world in the Fertile Crescent, right? Tigers, Euphrates, the place that we always start talking about human history in. We didn't find the, the site of Nineveh until the mid-19th century. That's how much this was wiped off the map, okay? Ten years after Nineveh is sacked, there is no more Assyrians, period, there's no revival. There's no return. The royal line is cut off. This nation comes to an entire end in history and never returns. That's what Nahum is talking about here. Verse 10, he says, They're like entangled thorns, like drunkards as they drink. They're consumed like stubble fully dried. Just rapid-fire imagery here. Okay. Verse 11, From you came one who plotted evil against the Lord, a worthless counselor. Most likely this is Shennacherib, right? The king that I already mentioned, who surrounded Judah, who threatened not just the people of Israel, but the God of Israel. And he counsels them. He says, look, just surrender right now. And he says, when you get to Assyria, it'll be beautiful. I'll give everybody their own fine, their own fig tree, right? It's like that old president who promised a ford for every garage. That was the promise that the king made. That's his evil counsel. In fact, the word here for worthless counselor is a son of Belial. It's one that's repeated over and over again. In fact, it has satanic connotations. Verse 12, thus says the Lord, though they are at full strength and many, they will be cut down and pass away. Okay, first thing I mentioned to you is that Nahum spoke of this before... Um, before the fall of Nineveh. Second, he spoke well before. Okay. Uh, as we'll see, it's after the destruction of Thebes. And so, so this is probably um, 50 to 60 years before the, before the fall of Nahum. What's interesting is this is at the pinnacle of Assyrian power. Okay. This is not Nahum looking at a tottering kingdom and going, hmm, I think I see the fall of Rome around the next corner. He, this is written during the glory days of Nineveh. Okay, when they are at their strongest, he warns them of what's coming. He says, they will be cut down and pass away, though I have afflicted you. That's speaking to Israel. I will afflict you no more. And now I will break off his yoke from off you, and I will burst your bonds apart. Remember, Israel was living actively under the thumb of Assyria. Verse 14, the Lord has given commandment about you. 
No more shall your name be perpetuated. From the house of your gods, I will cut off the carved images and the metal image. I will make your grave, for you were vile. Now, I will make your grave, again, speaks of finality, but it also speaks of something else. If here he's addressing himself to the king, and I would suggest he, he is, because it's in the singular here, from the house of your gods, I will cut you off. The recognition is there will be no one left to bury you, no one left to mourn you, right? You know, there's another person that God makes a grave for, Moses, back in the Deuteronomy. But that's a very different idea, right? Here, it's, I'm going to bury you because there will no one, be no one left to, but it's a sentence of judgment because of your vileness. Now, this is a good time to tell you about the vileness of Assyria, and what I'm about to describe to you is not from the critics of Assyria. It's from the king's own logs. We have tons and tons of writings, royal records of the kings of Assyria that talk about their behavior and how they treated those they defeated. They stacked the heads of corpses into pillars and pyramids. They flayed their victims while still alive and then adorned the walls of their cities with skins. They cut off the hands and the feet of men and women and children. And this is not stuff that they wrote about Assyria again. These are the boastful records of the king. They were a cruel and vindictive and horrible people and God saw it and he cared. Verse 15, behold upon the mountains the feet of him who brings good news, who publishes peace. Doesn't that seem wild here in the book of Nahum? That word there for bringing good news, that's the root of our word for evangelism, right? It's the one that in the Septuagint here is, is translated evangelion, where we get evangelism. In fact, it's parallel to the book of Isaiah that uses this same language. Beautiful are the feet of those who bring the good news, which uh, Paul quotes in the book of Romans. But again, what is the good news and the peace here? It's Assyria has fallen. It's oppression is over. It's justice has been done. And that is good news. In fact, notice what it means for Israel. Keep your feasts, O Judah. Fulfill your vows. Okay, the first thing it means is that the worship of God can continue unrestrained. One of the things that happens during this period of time is because of fear of the kings of Judah, they start to synchristically associate themselves with Assyria and worship their gods. And the whole worship of Israel turns away to foreign gods under the bully influence of Assyria. Okay. But that's going to change. God's going to restore worship. Look at what he says again. For never again shall the worthless pass through you. He is utterly cut off. If you want a New Testament touch point for that, just read the last chapter of Revelation chapter 21, 22. It says the same thing. Okay? It's the idea of no more corruption, no more destruction, no more oppressor, no more enemies. Okay? Chapter 2. Now, I want you to notice here, and we're going to move through this very quickly because that's how it's meant to be understood. Here, he flashes to very um, tangible, visual pictures of the destruction itself. Okay? 
So we've seen the character of God, we've seen the power of God, we've seen um, the inevitability of judgment, all of that, and now we see the event itself, and it's painted very vividly. Chapter 2, verse 1, the scatterer has come against you. Man the ramparts, watch the road, dress for battle, collect all your strength. It's as if somebody's shouting, you know, the enemy's in our gates, grab your sword, right? It's very, very uh, loud. Verse 2, why? For the Lord is restoring the majesty of Jacob and the majesty of Israel, for plunderers have plundered them and ruined their branches. And then we go back to this vision. The shield of his mighty men is red. His soldiers are clothed in scarlet. The chariots come with flashing metal. On the day that he musters them, the cypress spears are brandished. The chariots race madly through the streets. They rush to and fro through the squares. They gleam like torches. They dart like lightning. Now, sometimes this is where kind of the hymn of hate idea comes from. Because here it's painted so explicitly and so visibly. It's like he's taking pleasure in the vision. But notice that it's not gory, right? It's not graphic. But it is very vivid. And the question is why? Why does Nahum feel the need to be vivid? Because right now, the invulnerability, the power, and the eternalness of Nineveh is very present. Right? And so he paints a vision of their destruction that is just as vivid. Okay. I wanted to note one other thing here. In verse 3, it says that his soldiers are clothed in scarlet. Interestingly enough, Ezekiel also identifies the Babylonian armies that destroy and will destroy Jerusalem in chapter 23 as being clothed in red. And that's exactly who ends up knocking Assyria off their throne, the Babylonians. Okay? And so this isn't just vivid details, it's future tense accurate details. Okay? And then notice here we shift from the attack that's coming in to the defense, verse 5, he remembers his officers. They stumble as they go. They hasten to the wall. The siege tower is set up. The idea here is that the king suddenly goes, oh my gosh, I've got to send my soldiers to the front line. But they're tripping on their way, right? They're, they're barely making it. And the siege towers, by the time they get to the outer walls, are already set up, right? They're behind. And then notice it says in verse 6, the river gates are opened. The palace melts away. Now, this is interesting for a couple of reasons. Nineveh was built along the Tigris River. Okay? In fact, it was part of their defenses because they had this much larger than a moat that ran along the side of their city and provided a relatively safe protection on that side of the city. Um, but according to one Greek historian, this is exactly how Nineveh was overthrown. They closed the viaducts of the river basically dammed it up so that it overflowed and then released it and flooded the entire city of Nineveh, like Isengard in Lord of the Rings, okay? And so here it is labeled here that their, their strength will be their weakness, that it will be this that overcomes the city. In fact, that historian says that the flood was so damaging it took out two miles worth of wall, okay? Which is basically the end of your protection. Verse 7, its mistress is stripped she is carried off, her slave girls lamenting, moaning like doves and beating their breasts. Nineveh is like a pool whose waters run away. Halt, halt, they cry, but none turn back. Plunder the silver, plunder the gold. 
There's no end of the treasure of the wealth of all precious things. Desolate, desolation, and ruin. Hearts melt and knees tremble. Anguish is in all loins. All faces grow pale. Okay, and so he paints the whole picture. Nineveh's just completely overwhelmed. There's no courage, there's no strength, there's no resistance, they're just destroyed. And then a question is asked, verse 11, where is the lion's den, the feeding place of the young lions, where the lion and the lioness went, where his cubs were with none to disturb? Right, obviously here this is an image of Nineveh. This is an image of Assyria. Where's the strong place that you told travelers to stay away from because that's where the lions lived? But then notice verse 12, the lion tore enough for his cubs and strangled prey for his lioness. He filled his caves with prey and his dens with torn flesh. Now, if you watch the Discovery Channel, none of that is striking or jarring. That's exactly what we expect lions to do. But this isn't describing lions. This is describing human beings. And as I mentioned, according to their records, this is exactly who they were. They were those who strangled prey and tore the flesh and filled cities with the dead. But where are they now? Verse 13, Behold, I am against you, declares the Lord of hosts, and I will burn your chariots in smoke, and your sword shall, the sword shall devour your young lions. I will cut off your prey from the earth, and the voice of your messengers shall no longer be heard. Chapter 3, verse 1, Woe to the bloody city, all full of lies and plunder. No end to the prey. And then again to the imagery, the crack of the whip, the rumble of the wheel, galloping horses and bounding chariot, horsemen charging, flashing swords and glittering spears, hosts of slain, heaps of corpses, dead bodies without end, they stumble over the bodies, and all for the countless whorings of the prostitute, graceful and deadly charms who betrays nations with her whorings and people with her charms. So notice here, first, they're violent, but second, they're influential. The idea here is that they've not just attacked other nations, they've been exemplary to other nations. They've lured other nations into being like them, partnering with them, participating with them. Behold, God says again in verse five, I am against you, declares the Lord of hosts. Now I want you to notice in this next section, he's going to move through a bunch of imagery. And I want you to notice that kind of the ultimate idea here is of exposure. What God says is, here, I'm going to show you to be what you really are. And so look, he says, I will lift up your skirts over your face, and I will make the nations look at your nakedness and kingdoms at your shame. Okay, so here, here is a prostitute. That's what he refers to them in a sentence. And now he's going to expose them publicly. Okay, but notice here, it's an exposure of what they think is honorable. They are the wealthy, the influencer, right? With the big Instagram following, that's Nineveh. He says, no, I'm going to expose you publicly. And then he continues, he says here, I'll throw filth at you and treat you with contempt. Okay? They believe that they're clean, but he'll show them to be dirty. He says, I'll treat you with contempt. The idea there is you think yourself wise, worthy of honor because of your wisdom, but I will show you to be the fool. And then he says, and I will make you a spectacle. They think of themselves as famous, but he will make them infamous. All who look at you, verse 7, will shrink away from you and say, Wasted is Nineveh. Who will grieve for her? Where shall I seek comforters for you? Right? The destruction is great, 
but nobody's going, oh, Nineveh, right? Nobody's coming alongside to comfort, and we'll see why that is at the end of chapter 3. Now God starts to reason through Nahum with Nineveh, and I find this fascinating too. He says, consider with me. Notice the question he asks in verse 8. Are you better than Thebes that sat by the Nile? Okay. Now here's why this is interesting. He's about to make a comparison here with a great city that was also destroyed. But why is it interesting? Because guess who destroyed it? The Assyrians. This is one of their greatest victory, destroying Thebes. But he says, will you look at what you already know to be true? Do you really believe that you're more secure than Thebes was? And then he starts to strike comparisons. Okay, the first is that she sat by the Nile with water all around her, her rampart a sea, and the water her wall. Sound familiar? Like I told you, Assyria was built right along the Tigris, but it didn't protect Thebes. Then notice verse 9, Cush was her strength, Egypt too, and that without limit. Put and Libyans were her helpers. Thebes was surrounded by friendly nations, all who were committed to protecting her. It's one of the things that makes Assyria's victory so striking because they didn't strike a city on the edge of a nation. They marched right into the center of it and destroyed Thebes. Okay? In the same way, Nineveh is at the heart of Assyria and they have their neighboring countries on the side, but it was the same, not different. Okay? It also says that Egypt too and that without limit that means, wasn't Egypt full of soldiers? Just like Assyria, and then yet, verse 10, she became an exile. She went into captivity. Her infants were dashed into pieces at the head of every street, which is not only awful, but remember, it's describing Assyria's treatment of Thebes. For her honored men, lots were cast, and all her great men were bound in chains. He says, don't think that you wealthy upper crust of society that you're going to fare any better. You remember what happened to the wealthiest people in Egypt? You took them away in chains. You removed everything. You also, verse 11, just like Thebes, will be drunken. You will go into hiding. You will seek a refuge from the enemy. All your fortresses, like fig trees with the first ripe figs, if shaken, they will fall into the mouth of the eater. Right? When figs get really ripe, you don't have to pluck them off the tree. Just a little shake and they fall to the ground. And he says, this is what your fortresses are like. He says, verse 13, behold, your troops are women in your midst. Okay. Here it's just a reference to the fact that women aren't built the same way men are. And he says, even your strongest men won't be strong anymore. He says, the gates of your land are wide open to your enemies and fire has devoured your bars. Okay, remember all of the films you've seen where the gates have those big crossbars? He says, you're going to run to the gates, they're going to be blown open, and when you look for the crossbar to bar them, they're gone. Okay? All of these are a picture of insecurity. But remember, he's saying this to the most secure, powerful kingdom of the ancient world at its time. No contenders, no rivals. At this point in their history, Babylon is just a little tiny nation. Okay? Verse 14, again, emphasize of imagery, but here he basically says, all right, I've given you a warning. Go ahead and prepare yourself. And again, I think this is significant because of Shennacherib. Shennacherib comes to the king of Judah and he says, look, you're such a small nation. I want to give you a fair battle. So I'll give you all of these chariots 
if you even have enough man to man them, okay? And in the same way, it's almost as if God says here, all right, Nineveh, I've given you a warning. Go ahead and prepare yourself. Look at what he says, verse 14. Draw water for the siege. Strengthen your forts. Go into the clay. Tread the mortar. Take hold of the brick mold. He says, spend the rest of your time building up your ramparts, strengthening your defenses. Build the wall as high as you want. He says, there will the fire devour you. The sword will cut you off. It'll devour you like the locusts. He says, multiply yourself like the locusts. Multiply like the grasshopper. Build up your armies bigger and bigger and bigger. He says, you've increased your merchants more than the stars of heaven. The locust spread its wings and flies away. Okay. The idea here is that they had been multiplying and multiplying their influence economically. They had sent their merchants across the world, multiplied them like locusts, and he says, but in the day of battle, they're going to do the other thing locusts do, which is fly away and you won't be able to find them. Okay. Verse 17, your princes are like grasshoppers, your scribes like clouds of locusts setting on the fences in the day of cold. When the sun rises, they fly away and no one knows where they are. Like most insects, locusts are cold-blooded. So if there's no sun, really all they can do is just stay put and stay alive. He's like, right now, the only reason you have power is because it's a cold day. But when I bring the heat of my judgment, all of that's going to run away. Okay. Verse 18, your shepherds are asleep, O king of Assyria. Your nobles slumber. Your people are scattered on the mountains with none to gather them. There's no easing your hurt. Your wound is grievous. Okay. He says it's, it's not going to stand. It's not going to resist. And then notice this, all who hear the news about you will clap their hands over you. And again, this is a letter of comfort. That clapping is what? It's a celebration. It's a recognition that ding dong, the witch is dead. Okay. It is freedom for a world that has lived under this violence and under this oppression. In fact, look at the closing line here. For upon whom has not come your unceasing evil? It wasn't that Assyria had victims. Assyria made the whole world its victim. But this brings us to two interesting points. First off, Nahum ends his book here with a question. Right? Isn't that interesting? His final word here is a question. For upon whom has not come your unceasing evil? Now the reason I find that interesting is because the book of Jonah also ends with a question. Okay? Jump back before Micah and look at the book of Jonah, chapter 4. Remember here, God's addressing his disgruntled prophet because judgment hasn't fallen, because Nineveh repented and God has forgiven. And notice what he says here, to the same city. And should I not pity Nineveh, that great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left and also much cattle? The idea there of right hand from their left would be children. He says, Nineveh is such a great city. What about the little kids and the animals? Right? Even that, he says, Jonah, doesn't that at least bring about your pity? Would you not have compassion on the livestock as you're waiting for the whole thing to burn? But notice what he says here. Should I not pity Nineveh? 
he asks a question. We need to recognize tonight that the same God who asked this question is the same one who asked the one at the end of Nahum. God is forgiving and just. And that same forgiveness that was available in the days of Jonah is available in Nahum. In fact, remember Jonah's entire message is just a few words. Forty days and then judgment. Nahum walks through every piece and parcel. Jonah only gives a little bit more than a month of warning. Nahum gives 40 years. But the question that is also important, and the one that we have to wrestle with if we're to understand God's character tonight, is the one in Nahum. Upon whom has not come your unceasing evil? One last thing I want to do as we close tonight. It's very clear here that although God has plans for Nineveh, Nineveh, again, just like Edom, or if you want to go back further, just like Sodom and Gomorrah, stands as a template. In fact, his concerns here for Assyria are going to be just as applicable and appropriate for Babylon and for Rome. Okay? In fact, one of the places where Nahum is the most comforting today is in churches that live under the thumb of awful. Okay? Nahum is a comforting letter to those who are trying to endure Hitler's Germany. Okay? It's a trust that even the Third Reich will fall. It's a trust that the thousand-year reign that they've prophesied will come to an end and justice will be brought. In fact, it's really fascinating to read this and think of Hitler, right, who ends up buried in a bunker. I will make your grave for you are vile, God says. And with that in mind, it's worth turning and finishing here in the book of Revelation. Because it's pretty clear here in Revelation chapter 18, as God speaks of this international, all-powerful reality that Revelation calls the whore of Babylon. that he's drawing imagery from the book of Nahum. Now, you could read the whole thing, but let's just pick up in verse 4. Then I heard another voice from heaven saying, Come out of her, my people, lest you take part in her sins, lest you share in her plagues. For her sins are steeped, steeped as high as heaven, and God has remembered her iniquities. Pay her back as she herself has paid back others. Repay her double for her deeds. Mix a double portion for her in the cup that she mixed. As she glorified herself and lived in luxury, so give her a like measure of torment and mourning. Since in her heart she says, I sit as queen, I am no widow, and mourning I shall never see. For this reason her plagues will come in a single day, death and mourning and famine, and she will be burned up with fire, for mighty is the Lord God who has judged her. And the kings of the earth who committed sexual immorality and lived in luxury with her will weep and wail over her, and they will see the smoke of her burning, and they will stand far off in fear and torment and say, Alas, alas, you great city, you mighty city Babylon, for in a single hour your judgment has come. And the merchants of the earth weep and mourn for her, since no one buys their cargo anymore, cargo of gold and silver, jewels, pearls, fine linen, purple cloth, silk, scarlet cloth, all kinds of scented wood, 
all kinds of articles of ivory, all kinds of articles of costly wood, bronze, iron, and marble, cinnamon, spice, incense, myrrh, frankincense, wine, oil, fine flour, wheat, cattle, sheep, horses, chariots, and slaves, that is, human souls. The fruit of which your soul longed has gone from you, and all your delicacies and splendors are lost to you, never to be found again. Let's jump down to verse uh, 21. Then a mighty angel took up a stone like the great millstone and threw it into the sea, saying, So will Babylon, the great city, be thrown down with violence and will be found no more. And the sound of the harpists, the musicians of flute players and trumpeters will be heard in you no more. And a craftsman of any craft will be found in you no more. And the sound of the mill will be heard in you no more. And the light of a lamp will shine in you no more. And the voice of the bridegroom and the bride will be heard in you no more. For your merchants were the great ones of the earth, and all the nations were deceived by your sorcery, a direct reference to Nahum. And in her was found the blood of the prophets and the saints and of all who have been slain on the earth. This is why the message of Nahum is a comforting message. It's because God may be long-suffering, but he will bring justice. He will set right. He will restore, which is just another way of saying that he will judge. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for these books, and we thank you as well, Lord, that because of this truth, we can follow the teaching of Jesus um, that can turn the other cheek, that can pray for our enemies, that can join in your long-suffering, and can leave vengeance to God because you say, vengeance is mine, I will repay. So God, I ask that we, uh, we would live in that tension. We would live in the waiting. That we would resonate both with the martyrs under the throne in Revelation who cry out, how long? How long until you bring justice? And at the same time, Lord, we would recognize that this is the day of salvation. This is the day when we can bring the good news and where we can call people to repent for the kingdom of God is at hand where we can carry the good news, not just that justice will be done, but that forgiveness is available and all, as Obadiah said, who take refuge in the Lord will find safety. We praise you for this truth in Jesus' name. Amen.